This is an ABC podcast. As Australia's population expands, wild places shrink. And as wilderness shrinks, we want to lock it up and keep people out to protect the small patches that remain. But what exactly is wilderness? Is it a place untouched by human hands? In this Big Ideas, an Indigenous geographer says that what we call wilderness is not nature left to its own devices, but the result of 60,000 years of Indigenous shaping of the landscape. I'm Paul Barclay, and this discussion comes from the Planet Talks series at Wome Adelaide. The speakers are Martin Breed, restoration ecologist, Luke Price, ecologist and sheep farmer, and Indigenous geographer, Associate Professor Michael Sean Fletcher, who tackles what he calls the wilderness myth. It is a myth. You know, if you track the use of the term wilderness through time, you can do this just easily on Google if you want, and you can see it how it tracks through the, the British lexicon, it surges every time the British invade a new place. It surges when the British invaded the subcontinent. It surges when the, the British or Europeans discover the Americas. And it surges when Australia was invaded. And it surges most recently in the 60s with the conservation movement and the wilderness sort of driven conservation movement. And it's spawned a whole lot of uh, very important things such as wilderness acts that govern the way we can and can't use country and the way that we can and can't access country and all these, these kinds of uh, regulations on on country, and it, it is underpinned by the central notion, no matter how much we try and jig around the meaning, the central notion of wilderness is the absence of people. And in all those places that I've just mentioned, and actually in all the places that Europe colonised, have been occupied for millennia. And this, this continent here, at least 60,000 years. They've been managed by people, principally through the use of fire, but also other methods. And those landscapes have been radically changed. They've been managed through ice ages into the current interglacial, what we call the Holocene. There is a deep, profound human imprint on all these places that are now termed wilderness. And I think that's it's really harmful. It's harmful in a few ways. is because we deny the care that country needs. And we see the manifestation of this in a bunch of things. We see the manifestation in, in the catastrophic bushfires that we see at the moment through lack of care of country and the thickening of country that's happened. And this is from empirical data and from talking to traditional owners. Wilderness means sick country to Aboriginal people. And it's really the, one of the driving ethoses of the green movement, the wilderness-driven conservation movement. And what it actually means is neglect. You know, and I know that the green movement has good intentions, but it actually results in neglect of country. The narrative that we need to lock country up, that we need to remove human activity, deny country the care that it needs and the care that we get from engaging with country, for connecting with country, is destroying country. If you look at the, the loss of biodiversity on Earth, oh, sorry, in Australia, we've got the second fastest rate of biodiversity loss on Earth at the moment, the steepest trajectory of biodiversity loss began in 1790, well before climate change. It began when Aboriginal people were denied access to country and cultural management was moved, removed off country. We started losing species at a phenomenal rate. It's actually backed off through the climate change era because yeah, landscapes have rebounded from there and we're on a different trajectory now. And I see this wilderness movement as a kind of, I'm not a, a psychologist or a social psychologist, 
I see it as a, as a condition of the human mind, in modern human mind. And I equate it almost with over-exploitation of resources. It's the complete disconnection with country and understanding what country needs, that we need to lock it up and deny it and neglect it. And the other end of that spectrum is we just pillage and excavate and extract resources out with wanton abandon and, and don't care. And we're operating at the moment on these two ends of the spectrum and we're denying the fact that country needs care and it needs people and it needs appropriate care. And there's a, a river, not a river, like a, a flood of knowledge out there with traditional owners on how to care for country. And the myth that that knowledge is lost is, is truly a myth. If you just think about it, if you go into South East Australia where where massacres occurred and, and culture was beaten out of people, language was beaten out of people, you suddenly rock up with your new hat on and saying, hey, tell us about your knowledge of this country. They're not going to immediately open up. There's suppression. So we need to enter in a big, long conversation about what it means to actually live safely and appropriately on this continent. And wilderness, to me, is a massive, massive barrier to that and uh, something we need to get rid of. I'm going to throw over to Martin now. I think the most important thing that I would just build straight off what we just heard is that humans have this very long history connected with nature and it shaped our health. So if you look at us as a species, we've co-evolved in uh, the biodiverse environment. We're getting uh, grubby and that shapes, for example, our immune system. And that's a very old practice as a species. And now we've moved into this modern age of living in cities, driving around in cars, and being largely removed from that experience. And so I think during COVID-19 shutdowns and lockdowns, you know, we saw those amazing videos of kangaroos hopping down downtown Adelaide. We had uh, canals in Venice as clean as they've ever been for, from living memory. You could see the, the Himalayas from the northern parts of, of India for the first time in a generation. And so really that is testament to our footprint on nature, and yet we are so very much connected to nature for our health and well-being. So where I have spent most of my time over the last five or six years is thinking about how we as a species can really reconnect with nature and how we can do that in a very practical sense because there's a lot of us on the planet and we all need resources and we all need to some, to some degree eat and live a reasonably healthy lifestyle, so how on earth do we do that? And I think that's where some local initiatives, we've, we, you might be familiar with the National Park City announcement recently where Adelaide became the second National Park City in the world after London, and that's a, an opportunity, I think, to re-envision what our connection is as a species with nature in this amazing city that we all live in, or many of us live in. And so to me, if you look at the, the wilderness myth, I think the myth there to me is that we are not removed from it for our health and well-being. We need it, we rely upon it to be a healthy individual and a healthy population and a healthy species going forward. And we can actually do something about that. And I would encourage you all to check out the, the National uh, Park City Charter, which outlines some of the vision in that space. And there's many other uh, ways that we as a species, as a population, are connecting with nature, which hopefully we can get to in a bit more detail later on. I'm going to uh, bring out last but not least of our three speakers. So Luke Price, what, if anything, does wilderness mean to you and why and how is it a myth? I guess I come at this from a conservation biology sort of view. A lot of my work has been based in threatened species conservation. And one of the big things that we've seen is the change in 
species assemblages, the declines, massive declines, and a lot of that comes about through this lack of caring for country. This, I mean, this is a huge change in perspective, I think, for a lot of people when they traditionally think about conservation. And one of the things that comes to mind for me is this whole shifting baselines paradigm. Essentially, uh, I'm not sure if people are familiar with the concept that essentially that there's intergenerational change in the baselines that we as conservation managers or people tend to hold the line to. And often over time, there's this insidious sort of gap between what was and what is. And I think we can kind of, th I kind of think about it, you know, when Michael was talking that way, I sort of think, you know, people, it didn't take long, it took a generation for people to forget what needed to happen in order to preserve these ecosystems and these threatened species. And it's, yeah, it's pretty incredible. And, you know, that's been seen the world over. The shifting baselines um, or paradigm, uh, shifting baselines phenomenon, people call it. That's been around for a while. Some interesting work with fisheries where they've shown you know, massive changes in declines, shifts in fisheries um, to the point where you know, someone, what someone considers 30 years later to be the norm is far removed from what it used to be. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot of merit in what we're talking about here, but it means a lot of uncomfortable conversations for some people and some really harsh realities because for example, in our region, we've got a lot of heath, um, and that's a fire-dependent ecosystem. We've probably got about 14,000 hectares of heath left in the region. Massive amounts of it are being cleared, and in, we actually have to do burning in those areas to preserve that heath, to, to keep the heath-dependent species in those areas. We've seen massive declines where probably about 8,000 hectares of that 14,000 is no longer in a suitable fire age class to support a whole suite of th threatened species that we actually are concerned about. So that's a perfect local example, I think, to really speak to what Michael's saying. A lot of people out there are trying to protect wilderness, and the word protection comes up a lot. In fact, speaking of colonisation's impact, the word protection was even used for the way that Indigenous people were displaced, killed, prevented from having this connection. Michael, I wanted to ask about this word protection and protecting the environment. How can we balance what we see when you remove people from the environment and it gets better versus what you're saying, which is we have to have this active engagement with the environment to actually heal it? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I'd, I'd challenge you on what, what you define as better yeah. you know, and what metrics you're using as better. But the whole protection thing and, and the whole conservation ideology stem from a particular cultural viewpoint. And I think we need to step back and, and uh, address that. You know, and it should start in schools and we should start questioning ourselves. One of the biggest things we're doing at the moment at institutional levels around the country is, is truth-telling and decolonisation workshops and challenging ourselves about our preconceptions. And a lot of these things, and talking about fire, Luke, you know, and the, the European mindset of fire, I mean, the, Europe, and I'll sort of digress a little bit here, is this idiosyncratic place on Earth that has had a divorced relationship with fire, detached its relationship with fire because of circumstances such as highly productive environments that led to high population densities, relatively low flammable environments, the construction of wooden cities and things like this where fire became a danger. So slowly through time, Europe became detached from what the rest of humanity around the world had, which was a long connection with fire. 1.7 million years ago, people started using fire 
and subsequently transformed the vast majority of the Earth. A recent paper out in uh, PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, last year, by Earl Ellis, says that there was less than, I think, 12% of the Earth that has not been modified by humans going back as far as 12,000 years ago. Okay? Some form of human modification of the Earth. And the principal vehicle for that was with fire. So then what we've had is this explosion of this radiation of the European mindset and the cultural baggage that that brings with you into new places. And so people see fire as this kind of, and we try, we, we try and wrestle with this and understand that you know, this is a fiery place and it needs fire, but there's still this cultural barrier to understanding the kinds of fire and the diversity of fire. If you look at some languages in the top end, there are dozens of words for the use of fire and what fire means and the way you use fire, how, it, how it's enacted, what it's for, spiritual, cultural, you know, ceremonial, uh, landscape management, all this kind of stuff. This is the nuance that we've, we're ignoring. It's not lost, it's there, you know, and it's sort of quiescent at the moment. And we're, we're missing that. And that's cultural before it is pragmatic. And even the word management riles against me. And, and what we deal with, and you see this in the Bruce Pascoe debate with Dark Emu and, and Sutton uh, with his reply, is a semantic argument. It's all based on definitions. And Sutton's argument against Bruce Pascoe is basically around defence of what the word agriculture means or doesn't mean. So there's a limitation. We're using English language to describe what you know, millennia-old activities have developed in this place. You know, and you could argue very sustainably for a long period of time. You know, and this myth that you know, Aboriginal people were on the way to agriculture or you know, developed, that's a limitation of language. We can't actually describe adequately in the English language. So management is this kind of, it's this quasi-religious, separation of you know, this Cartesian split between humans you know, and, and the world around them, and then this need to manage and pull levers and control rather than embed. And what we're missing here is an embeddedness. You know? And you can say, oh, I'll go out into the bush or to the wilderness and I connect. You know? It's almost like if you've read Brave New World, you, know, you take Soma to get away from, uh, from the rigours of, of society you know, and you take your little check out and get into nature. It's, it's just this, this kind of split, you know? and we've split. And in the middle here is is a more embedded connectedness through your life. And one, the big barrier here is cultural. You know? I don't think it's what we do, because what we do is stem from culture. Look at the fire agencies around the world. Wonderful people you know, who battle our fires. So there's the word, battle. You look at the way they're structured. They're paramilitary organisations with containment line sergeants, all this sort of stuff. It's a war. It reminds me of you know, Trump, uh, not Trump's, um, Bush's war on terror. You know, like there's these non-existent entities that we're trying to battle. It's a war we're never going to win. We have to step within and connect and understand. And there's already a river of knowledge and body of knowledge out there that we can connect with. And I'm not saying we have to wind the clock back and, and then recalibrate everything. But up until now, what's the definition of uh, insanity? Doing the same repeated thing over and over again and failing. You know, that's what we're doing. And we're ignoring this knowledge that we can tap into on how to appropriately live. You know, and in, in my world, I. I at the university, I deal with safe operating procedures, SOPs. I'm sure a lot of you do that. You know, like, well, Aboriginal people hold that for this continent, you know, and we're, we are insane and completely ignorant not to try and tap into that and wrap it in. You know, and then people say, oh, it's not traditional if people are walking around with drip torches or, or um, rain dance machines. Rain dance machines, for those who don't know, ironically, are uh, aerial incendiaries that they shoot out of helicopters to do burning. Um, well, no, humans. One of our hallmarks is developing, uh, sorry, adapting and, and incorporating new technologies. And cultural management isn't the tools you're using, it's your method of management and the culture and the ethos behind that. So you could use anything and it's cultural management because it's the culture. And we forget that, you know, and I think that there's a real positionality here that's born from the church 
was challenged in the Enlightenment, but actually just recycled through the Enlightenment into the humans and nature, you know? And we're still in that, that weird space, and it's producing all these socially mental symptoms of hard right greens who want to lock things up, ridiculous exploiters who want to pull it all up, you know? And we're, we're operating around these extremes, and we need to have a serious look at ourselves the cultural baggage that we bring in and challenge ourselves and move forward more appropriately, I think. Associate Professor Michael Sean Fletcher, Director of Research Capability at the Indigenous Knowledge Institute, University of Melbourne. The other speakers are Luke Price, Regional Ecologist for SA Hills and Fluria Landscape Board, and Martin Breed, a Restoration Ecologist at Flinders University. Host Lee Constable asks Martin whether Indigenous techniques are incorporated into restoration ecology? Uh, that's a complicated question. I don't spend a lot of time connecting with Indigenous peoples in my research, but I, I would say that a lot of people uh, today, being a restoration ecologist, are starting that conversation. And, you know, it's obviously way too late, and it's something I never learnt going through undergraduate studies in ecology. Uh, and I think it's one of the, probably one of the most, the, the biggest gaps in knowledge that exists. And as we heard about, uh, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and failing as uh, the definition of insanity, I think you could probably say the same thing about protection of biodiversity. We've obviously failed if you look at the state of the world's biodiversity. And so whether it's the standard operating uh, procedures of Indigenous peoples or just the failings of the conservation movement, I don't think there's any disconnection between the two. I'd say there's clear need to rethink the way that we want to repair our ecosystems, and I think the most important part there is our relationship as a species with nature. Mm. And that to me is the biggest gap in knowledge. How we do that in practical terms, to me, that's the biggest gap. How can we all rebuild our relationship with nature? And uh, I'm not an Indigenous person, my parents are from the UK, and I'm passionate about protecting, restoring, kick-starting the recovery processes in ecosystems around the place. And I, I talk to my, my friends outside of academia. That's probably the most important place to me. I'm a, a keen mountain biker, and a lot of the mountain bikers I ride with are not scientists. They ha come from a great diversity of backgrounds. And to me, that's probably the most fulfilling place to have conversations about what it means to be out in the bush riding a bike. And they really like it. Uh, and whether they like it because they're out in nature, well, maybe they do, but they don't know that they do. And so for me, that rebuilding of that relationship is part of the, the satisfaction of the work that I do. Now, you're using terms like being out in nature. Mm. How do you mm. break down that idea that we're either in nature or out of it? People that work and live in cities are clearly not exposed to the biodiversity from an ecological understanding as they would if they didn't spend all their time moving from their house, sitting on a train, a bus, a car to work, go to work and come home again and maybe go to the, the pub or a cafe or a restaurant, that to me is being removed from nature. Whether that language is correct or not, I'm not quite sure. But to me, that really is where we can make the biggest differences. So can we bring elements of nature into our cities that helps us get that exposure, whether we like it or not? Because changing people's behaviour is the hardest thing there is. Yeah. And I don't think that's possible to to win the, the changing of people's behaviour argument now, I'd say that we need to uh, change the environment around us to bring nature closer to everybody. Luke, you're a sheep farmer, and my parents are sheep farmers. I think 
growing up on a farm actually is what got me interested in quote-unquote nature, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, but farming is obviously one of these um, places where colonisation and changing the landscape and European ideals about the land come about. How do you bring in more of the ideas that Michael's talking about into your practice as a farmer? I think any farmer has a strong connection with their land that they're working with. I think by, you know, you, I mean, you have to work with the seasons, you have to work with the land. You can't adapt it to how you envisage it should be. You have to adapt to what it is. And I think, for me, I, I feel deeply connected to my property. I mean, we've set aside about a third of it for biodiversity. We've fenced off a lot of the native vegetation that previous owners were just letting their cattle graze. Um, we've set aside an area that we're looking at restoring. That's quite a specific type of restoration. We're looking at targeting it for habitat for particular threatened species. But most farmers will probably say that the thinking is probably similar to this. You know, you, it's like tending a garden. You know, most people have got a garden, and most people would know that if you let it, if you don't tend to your garden, if you don't connect with it, if you don't understand how the seasons work, particularly if you're growing vegetables, that sort of thing, then very quickly it all goes pear-shaped, and it doesn't. It's not actually working in the way in which it should. And I think that directly applies to the to nature, to biodiversity, to these threat, to these ecosystems that we're working with. You know, we've not only have we fragmented the habitat, so the, have we cleared huge amounts of land, you know, to the point where well, we've wiped out some ecosystems, but we've also put others on a trajectory of decline. We've already lost lots of threatened species, and we're still continuing to lose lots of threatened species. And I think, but one of the things, for example, if you, look, if you take that analogy of a garden, you put it into a patch of native scrub, there's weed invasions now, so it's not just about, there's added threats that we've added to it, so you've got, you could have a patch of scrub that you've fenced off and you think's fully protected, and you might even manage the fire in there, but if you don't go in regularly and take out those weeds, eventually, you look at the hills face zone around here, grassy woodland ecosystem, some areas are turning into olive groves. You know, it doesn't take much. You only have to take your eye off that area or not get out and tend to it, not connect with it, and it just it all goes pear-shaped. Michael, if you had some advice for people here on what they can do, learn more about, what they can go away with from today when it comes to nurturing nature and and breaking down this myth of wilderness? So nurturing, I, I, I rebel against that term too. I think, I think connection's the right word, you know? I think, um, you know, and you're right, I talk to a lot of farmers, and any long-term farmer knows they need to care for country, care for their country if they want to persist. It's the kind of, you know, this push towards the conglomerates and, and kind of short-term gains, and you can see this through farming and private native forestry and, all, and timber industry and all this sort of stuff. But I remember way back when I was much younger working at a at a reception, wedding reception things, you know, and, I, and I'd see, I'd go out and collect plates and see half-eaten bits of chicken and beef and all this stuff, and I, what's producing this? I mean, what a waste, you know? A, an animal sacrificed its life for this, or, sorry, didn't have the choice. <laughs> 
But what a waste in terms of resources. And that's born from a lack of connection. You know, my kids are sitting here in front row. We, we make sure we let them know that if what they're eating actually has a place, you know, like it's this animal here, you know, and they can choose whether or not they want to eat these sorts of things. But that connection's missing from the vast majority of people living in city, and there's, they're happy to waste. I mean, that's just a travesty. So you don't have to sort of A, get all spiritual, or B, go and, you know, connect with traditional owner groups to become more connected. You just have to, to change your thinking and just become more connected and be more responsible in the world around you, I think, and, and that way you can start caring. And the whole thing, Mark, we're talking about bringing the city in, you know, we've got to stop viewing cities and out of cities as this kind of nature, non-nature thing. It's all nature. I mean, we need to sort of bring it in and it's all country, you know, and whether that there's a capacity to kind of have plants in there or whatever, but there's a way that we can behave and respect and connect with country. There's a lot of drivers there. There's, there's people have, you know, workloads and all this sort of stuff that drive particular behaviours. We do have downtime and, and this sort of stuff, and we need to orient that in the right direction and just sort of start connecting. And I work a lot in forest ecosystems and lately trying to understand the catastrophic fires that have been happening since you know, the, the early 1900s and ramping up what's causing them. The traditional owners know what's causing them. The country's sick, it's too crowded, too woody. There's too many shrubs connecting the ground to the canopy where you know, fires start on the ground usually and they can race up into the canopy. All this sort of stuff, the knowledge is there, but I mean, you know, white people don't listen to Aboriginal people, we know that, you know. So my life is essentially, at the moment, developing empirical data to, to support Aboriginal communities. And there is, without a shadow of a doubt, the pre-post-invasion period has seen our forests, has seen our land bifurcate. So bifurcate split into two. We've got these areas that we overly perform agriculture on and we keep them clear and we add things to them and we really grind them hard. And we've turned our back on the rest. And we used to look after them with old school forestry, you know, and, and single tree logging and this kind of care where, where foresters actually knew their timber. I was actually listening to John Williamson, Rip Rip Woodchip. Remember there's that line in there, you know, and foresters knew their timber, tallowwood and blackwood and all this sort of stuff. It's true. People knew and cared at the right scale. Now we have people in environment departments looking after thousands of hectares. And they might have soil moisture indices, they might have a couple of crews of quick got to get some burning in there, complete disconnection and appropriate scale of management. And for me, the, a good way forward is actually to start scaling our management properly. And the other thing out here is you've got a massive workforce in it, Aboriginal people who are screaming out to connect to country, screaming out to be recognised for their knowledge, screaming out with the opportunity to get their bare feet on the ground and connect with country and be valued for that. And we've seen the revelation that's happened in the top end with the savannah burning. Communities are, you look at all the metrics, and I can point you at all the data and all this sort of stuff, but you know, school attendance increases, uh, social welfare uh, dependence decreases, all these social metrics start going through the roof because Aboriginal people are being valued and they're connecting. And this is through a really smart thing, the Ranger program, that we should roll out all over the place. I mean, we can actually do it. We've got to stop turning our back on this. We've got to stop driving through and seeing the crowding along wilderness area or whatever it is that we're seeing and thinking that the big thick thing that we can barely walk through is actually healthy. It's not. And that's part of the reason we're losing a lot of species because it's unhealthy. Mm. And we, we can join a lot of dots here and, and achieve a lot of things environmentally and socially if we just connect. I work in deep time, you know, so over the last 12,000 years there's been shifts. There's been wetter, warmer, cooler, drier, da 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 da. As soon as you just write something down, this is what it's like, it becomes this concrete fixed benchmark. And oral traditions are actually a way around that. You know, they're open to interpretation, which is actually more dynamic. And they say, I know oral traditions that have hardwired information about the last ice age, low sea levels. There's no written tradition, no written knowledge that I know about that can go back that far. And this is persistent knowledge through the system. So there's something to be said for not 
being so fixed on metrics and written down and this is the thing in a dynamic world, you know, like, and I think we need to actually start thinking a bit more about this kind of river of time that we're on and be appropriate of the appropriate time, so. Luke, what sort of takeaways do you have for people who might be thinking, what do I do after this session? What do I take from this? I guess we've got the three R's that most people are familiar with, which is reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, from a conservation point of view and dealing with restoration, that's the thing, you know, ours, I sort of think, I sort of always go back to that retain, restore, reconstruct. So we have to retain the habitat that we have left. We've taken so much of it out, we need to retain it. That doesn't mean locking it up, it means managing it in the right way. We have to restore those degraded ecosystems that we've got. And then uh, we've got a long road ahead of us of reconstructing a whole suite of habitat for a bunch of threatened species which are area sensitive. So uh, you really need to make sure that we focus on those sorts of things. So when you look at, we're still seeing clearance at a massive scale. We've got to find ways to stop that. We've got to change our expectations of how we should live and do that because we're going to continually see declines if we don't actually put some effort into doing better. I'm going to now ask Martin, what are your main things that you'd like people to learn more about or do? My number one thing would be to acknowledge that there's a lot of people on the earth, there's seven plus billion, and the vast majority of those people I think would live in pretty socially deprived settings unlike the majority of us. So I would probably encourage everybody to speak to their friends, family, their networks to encourage people to start to get out and enjoy nature because if you don't enjoy it, you probably won't value it. And the way that you do that, I guess, has to be carefully done. But I think probably the most important thing that I recommend is people do speak about it, people do connect, and people enjoy it. It's a bit perhaps philosophical, but I'd say go out and enjoy it. Because if you don't enjoy it, you won't value it, and neither will your friends and your family. To wrap up this discussion from Worm Adelaide, host Lee Constable asks for audience questions. I guess when we think of restore and regeneration, the first image that probably comes to people's minds is planting trees. And a lot of us have probably been involved in planting trees. But my question's more about what do you think the human role is in what comes after planting trees, in making sure we manage the land and we manage the invasive weeds and the invasive animals that are now restricting ability for those trees to actually grow and to restore an ecosystem. I think one of the things we probably need to think about too is what's our objective when we plant those trees? There's a lot of restoration, tree planting and work that goes on that's not really hitting any meaningful giving any meaningful outcomes to the species that are declining. There's a lot of sort of generic plantings that probably aren't as targeted as they could be. There are some amazing examples of others that are targeted. So I think, first of all, think about why you're doing it. I think try to prioritise what you're actually doing it for, because I think you'll get a much better outcome for it. And then that would tend to guide what you actually then do in the long term. So for us, for example, we've restored about 120 hectares of heath, which is roughly 60 Adelaide ovals um, to date. It's a very targeted revegetation for a suite of declining birds that rely on heath and they're area sensitive, so they need much larger areas of habitat to persist. Um, but what we'll have to do in order to manage that system is we'll have to introduce fire at the right time. We'll have to ensure that particular weeds aren't invading. 
you know, there's a, there'll be a constant ongoing management and we'll have to adapt that as we learn. So, you know, we want to, we've only put it back 120 hectares. We've got estimates based on minimal viable population size for the most area sensitive species in that group, which is the brightly coloured uh, Western Beautiful Firetail. Um, we know that we probably need about 25,000 hectares of heath in this region to actually support that species. It's gone down from, it used to be quite widespread, basically it now persists in Deep Creek and Cox Scrub, but we've got 11,000 hectares of habitat to restore. So why I say people need to think about where, what they're planting and why they're doing it, it's because you can have a much more meaningful outcome in preserving biodiversity when you target it to those threatened species. If the objective is to retain biological diversity, just doing generic sort of work, well, it'll help with biodiversity, but you're not actually stopping species loss. So hopefully that answers your question. The biggest problem facing this world today is the human population. Is there anyone taking this as a, you know, as a serious problem? And um, it'll require a huge mindset change to try and solve this problem. It's a contentious thing, like talking about population control, really, aren't you? Like, we've got a negative population growth in Australia, but we have, you know, net import to, to make our population grow. I mean, I think the calculations are that if we all live more sustainably, if we didn't eat so much meat and we didn't consume so much and so wantonly waste, then we could probably support the population that we have, but we don't. We can actually look at our life and what we do rather than restricting how many People, how many babies people can have. But, you know, I think in developed countries, there's a negative population growth in just about every developed country, you know? So I think one way might be to actually bring up the, developed, the developing countries to a good economic status, and they'll follow the same trend. How important is it to take into consideration how we think about fencing country in trying to care for it? I'm not a big fan of fences, personally, you know? Um, we have an issue now with invasive species. You know, fences don't keep them out either. You know, like I've, I'm a bit of a quasi-communist. I think you know, like we should sort of be no fences, and we should all sort of relatively the commons. You know, like all of this property. I mean, it was all stolen anyway. So you know, the fact that you think you own it and put a fence around it's a myth. Uh, manage it, but you're right. Sometimes fences are important if you want to keep out some kinds of ferals that are endangering certain things. So I think you can do it appropriately. We have a, a particular fixation on invasives, you know, and we have a museum mentality about landscapes. We think that we've got to wind them back and that they're locked in that and that's why they're in perpetuity. Dingoes invaded, humans invaded, eucalypts invaded, you know, myrtles invaded, like there's dynamism there. So we actually have this obsession with invasives and I understand that they're very important for knocking out some threatened species and we need to, but I think we have this enormous amount of energy uh, and it's once again this human control thing about all these levers trying to, trying to control the landscape and have this fixed thing, this idea. We don't understand the dynamism in the river that we're on. So I think, you know, that didn't exactly answer your question. In some cases, I think they're, they're a good thing, but I think there's too many. Um, I was wondering why you guys think there is such a big group of people that feel disconnected to nature. We're brought up in cities and I think most of us live in cities and that's way more than 50% of the global population and that's the problem. So nature's not in our cities from a biodiversity perspective, and we were all brought up in that context, or the majority of us are brought up in that context. So if we can rebuild that biodiversity back into our cities, in my view anyway, that's a great way to rebuild that connection. You've been listening to The Wilderness Myth, part of the Planet Talk series at WOM Adelaide, 
with restoration ecologist Martin Breed, Luke Price, ecologist and sheep farmer, and Indigenous geographer, Associate Professor Michael Sean Fletcher. You're with Paul Barclay on Radio National, and this is Big Ideas. Broadcast, podcast, and on the ABC Listen app. Why do homegrown vegetables taste better? Top chef and restaurant critic Matthew Evans decided to find out. Now he's a farmer and he knows that the answer lies in the soil. He's written a book about the importance of replenishing soil. I spoke to Matthew at the Byron Writers' Festival. I think part of the reason I wanted to, to write about soil is because 10 years ago, as, a, as someone who tried to grow food for a couple of years, I started to sort of get interested in why certain things grew better and get interested in soil generally. And the stuff I found out about soil just blew my mind. Like if you weighed all the trees and all the plants on earth and all the animals on earth, that's all the stuff that we see. Uh, soil stores six times more carbon than that. So when you plant a tree, yes, the tree has some carbon in it, but it's actually soil doing the heavy lifting, but we don't see it. And in fact, if we can see soil, it's damaged. Your bare earth is, is damaged earth or dying earth. But the soil beneath our feet, a single shovelful of healthy soil, is more biodiverse than the entire Amazon rainforest. And the Amazon rainforest is the most biodiverse ecosystem on land. Yes, no, there's some incredible uh, kind of descriptions of, of soil in the book. There are more living things in a teaspoon of soil than humans on the planet. Billions of living things, and as you as you just said, then a shovel of soil is uh, has as much biodiversity as as the Amazon rainforest. What is it in the soil that is living? Yeah, it is. It is a living, breathing eco ecosystem. Um, yeah, the top twenty centimeters of soil exchanges all its its gases, the oxygen and carbon dioxide and other gases, every um, every hour. You know, so it's, it is actually breathing, even though we think of it as quite solid. Um, so what's in it? In, you know, the living things, well, mostly it's bacteria, uh, fungi. So uh, we think of fungi as mushrooms, that's the fruiting body, but most of the, the fungi is underground and, and these fine filaments and threads that, that go through the soil, um, connecting plants and uh, managing things underground. We have um, nematodes, little microscopic worms. You have uh, protists like protozoa, um, algaes. Um, yeah, these little things uh, called springtails and, and um, there's this great website, Chaos of Delight, which is um, this guy photographs what's called mesofauna. They're colourful, they're, they're cute. There can be 13,000 of them under a single step in the forests of America. That's how, how dense this ecosystem is that live in soil. And we'll pick up on, on some of that. But when, when did you first realise the importance of soil? I grew up in a family that didn't grow a lot, um, so I wasn't you know, really a grower. And when I started to grow things, I wonder why one patch of my garden would grow better than another. And, you know, I'd go, oh, this, this stuff tastes really delicious. And, you know, I'm not a very good, we're not very good growers. We weren't then. And so why does this taste delicious and why does it taste better than the shops? And, and then as we grew uh, over more years and looked after the soil in the same patch of land over, over more and more years, the stuff got more delicious that we took from there. And I thought, well, what, what's that about? Like, why, this is, I get the same rainfall, it's the same 
uh, geology. So that 95% of soil is crushed up rock. So the crushed up rock is the same today as it was 10 years ago. Why do my carrots taste better today than they did 10 years ago? What has changed when I live in the same part of the world with the same sunlight and the same rainfall? Um, and what's changed is the biology in the soil. And so what we've, we've done is got more life within the soil, which has changed the way our things grow, but more importantly to me, because I'm a chef by trade and a glutton um, <laughs> by nature, uh, is that I've actually got more <laughs> got more delicious food on the table by looking after the biology of the soil, the living things in the soil. Yeah, yeah. In order to tell this story, I suppose we should firstly remind the listener that you are a kind of unlikely farmer, an unlikely agriculturalist in a way, or at least on paper that seems to be the case. You were living in Sydney working as a chef in restaurants, in some fancy restaurants. You were a food critic. And then came this big lifestyle change. What, what drove that? Well, most of my life has been driven by my desire to eat either more or eat better. <laughs> I was eating in really fancy restaurants and, and they were saying how good the produce was because they, you know, they'd spend the money and they take a lot of time to find good ingredients. And they were saying how good the ingredients were. But then I met home growers and, you know, you're sitting in someone's, uh, at someone's kitchen table, eating a lettuce undressed, no, you know, no salt, no pepper, nothing except the raw ingredient. Going, hang on, this lettuce tastes better than Australia's most expensive restaurant. Mm. So I started to think, well, wow, what's that about? Um, and I got interested in why some things taste different to others. And I thought, well, that's the grower. And so I thought, well, I should, I'd like to have a crack at growing. And where I lived in Sydney, it wasn't possible. And um, to have three chooks uh, or a little garden, so I, so I moved to south, uh, to Tasmania, almost accidentally bought a little farm in southern Tasmania, and. And suddenly I had more than three chooks. I had 10 chooks and three sheep and uh, a dairy cow and a, a, and a really big garden, two pigs, which became 10 pigs, which became 15 pigs. Yeah, it's interesting, that story. I, a long time ago, read this really interesting story about a classically trained French chef who went to live in Greece and lived on a property in Greece with a family. And she was an incredibly acclaimed chef but she said that she realised that she understood food for the first time, living with this family in Greece who grew their own tomatoes, their own olives, made their own bread, their own lettuce. And she said, coming up to the lunch table uh, after they'd picked basil and lettuce and sliced up the tomatoes and the freshly baked bread came out of the oven, she realised that she understood what food was about for the first time, you know, homemade olive oil. And it was the flip side of complex French cooking, but she realised in a sense that was what the essence of food is about. I, I trained as a chef when I left school and I thought, and I, and I went to fancy restaurants because I thought, wow, oh, chefs are making great food. And now, then I realised actually, you know, growers uh, are actually making great food and chefs hopefully don't stuff it up. And when that woman was in in Greece, she's, she's essentially tasting that patch of the earth and the biology within that earth and, and how they nourish the soil that, that nourishes them. So you did always have an interest in the provenance of the ingredients that you were using when you were a chef in the city? Oh, <laughs> I like to say I did. <laughs> um, you know, yes and no. Chefs are busy. Yeah. Um, I was busy. No. If I had, I think if I had, especially with meat, if I had an idea of how some of the things were produced, I probably wouldn't have used them. Uh, what I love now, 15, 16 years after I left Sydney, is that when I look into the cities now, there is this great focus on uh, where things come from. You know, who, who grew this? What's happened with that thing to make it better? Um, and that seems to be creeping into the, and onto restaurant menus. It's, it's there a lot more than it was, certainly when I, when I trained 
in the early uh, 80s in Canberra, um, provenance wasn't uh, <laughs> mm. we used to um you know cut up the, the stalks of silver beet and um put it in mornay sauce and call it call it fennel in mornay sauce because no one knew what fennel tastes <laughs> like you know that's sort of how far australia's come <laughs> we're doing really well compared to what we were yeah no look i live just around the corner from the victoria market in melbourne and uh, every day when i do go and shop there I, I i reckon i see at least one ingredient every day that i don't know uh, what it is, uh, you know, such as the diversity of food that's on offer. I mean, I mean, you make no bones about the fact that you were a pretty poor gardener when you moved onto the farm, that you didn't know a lot about growing plants. How did you learn to tend a veggie garden and produce the food that you now produce on your farm? Was this a kind of a case of trial and error, essentially? Yeah, yeah, very much so. So, so when I lived in Sydney, you know, I, and I first thought, oh, I'd, I'd like to grow more. I couldn't grow anything in the yard behind where I was living. It was overshadowed. It just grew moss and snails. So I got a, a plot in a community garden. It was in a churchyard, and my plot was about the size of a grave. And, and I can tell you, Paul, I sent a lot of plants to the grave um, in that in that particular little plot. Um, I know the you feeling. Know, the only thing I, yeah, the only thing I nourished was was parsley, and, and and I'll be really you know frank. I'm not the gardener on our farm. I'm my wife is the gardener, and we have professional gardeners who work with us. I'm still rubbish at it, but but what's you know, what's really amazing is when you have a crack. So there are a few things you can learn early on on how to grow food, and a carrot seed's destiny is to become a carrot, right? That's what it is designed to do. So if you can put some conditions in place where it fulfills its destiny then you become a successful grower. So it's in some ways, even a Gumby like me can be successful way more often than I would have thought. So about 95% of the time, I reckon, when we first started, we would never research it properly because we would just just launch in and, and find out what's going on later. And 95% of the time it worked. And the 5% of the time is when we probably learnt you know, so much more than the, you know, when it was successful. When you fail, um, that's actually when you learn. But But nature... Wants to grow like a mother pig wants to raise healthy piglets. You know, a carrot seed wants to become a carrot. A, a seed potato wants to become the next year's crop of potatoes. And so, if you can work with what nature is trying to do, you can be successful enough as a grower. Um, and we were lucky enough to live in a society where if it doesn't quite work out with that crop, we have shops, and most of us are able to afford to go and supplement what we can grow with with stuff that we haven't managed to grow. Mm. Outside my window, I can see right now where the possums have come in and stripped all of our um, our house gardens vegetables because we have a market garden down the, ro- the road which is well fenced. Our house garden isn't. We thought it would be fine, but we've we've lost our entire winter harvest to um, to the native wildlife. Actually, I should locate you. Your farm is in the Huon Valley, not far from Hobart. You've got some pigs, chooks, cattle, sheep, goats, ducks, uh, and a small restaurant on site, about a 30-acre family farm tucked in a gully. Is that about right? Yeah, it's actually it's about 70 acres. Okay. Um, there's probably about you know, 30 acres that's um, left for wildlife and, and um, yeah, creek, creeks and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it's a mixed farm. Um, and the only thing, other thing is we don't have ducks. We only have one duck, and she's named Joanne. Oh, okay. and we milk some cows. Okay. Um, yeah, we have beef cows and dairy cows, yeah. But apart from that, yeah, you nailed it. Sounds like a beautiful part of the world anyway. There's so much interesting uh, in the book about soil. You, uh, you, you say that, and I think this applies to me as well, you say that you think that you thought that basically how plants grew was that they ate the soil. Uh, <laughs> that's clearly not actually quite what happens. But can you explain to us, because you do in the book, how soil 
helps plants to grow and therefore creates the food that we eat. Yeah, um, yeah, this was a real mystery to me. And I guess it starts with photosynthesis. So, so when a plant captures the sun's energy, you know, when I was at school, and I think I can't remember the teacher's name, but it was fairly boring. They taught us about photosynthesis and I probably dozed off because that's what I did during science. But the, the message what I got was when a plant photosynthesizes, so that you know, the green in the leaves, it, it captures carbon uh, dioxide out of the air and releases oxygen. And in this beautiful synergy, we breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. So plants help us to breathe by you know, getting rid of the carbon dioxide and releasing more oxygen for us to breathe. And that was the message I got. But actually, really, that's kind of a little bit what, about what plants do. But really what they do is they create sugar out of thin air. So a, a plant takes in carbon dioxide and turns it into carbohydrates. So using the sun's energy, photons of sunlight, um, it turns carbon dioxide with a bit of water into carbohydrates. So they make sugars out of thin air. Like It's a, it's a total miracle. And that living, breathing superorganism that the ecosystem around the roots of a plant they can't create their sugars just like you and me we need to eat some we need to eat something that's already lived to survive um, we can't create sugars out of thin air and that's sugars out of thin air are energy in digestible form so there's things around the base of a plant they need those sugars so what happens around the base of a plant and you're, you're right plants don't eat dirt but they need things that are in the crushed up rock um, uh, and they need biochemicals that are created um, around the roots of the plant. They need those to thrive. So yes, they can create sugars, but they need calcium and they need iron and they need magnesium. And they all, those things exist not in gases or in water. They exist in the soil. And how do they get them? Well, they get they're made available to the plant by the action of the microbes. So you know all these most of the bacteria in the, in soil, the biggest um, concentration of them is clustered around plant roots, because what plant do is they can put out messages saying I need more phosphorus or I need more uh, iron or you know I need other, other things from the soil and the microbes can find them so fungi can can stretch much further away from the plant than the roots go um, they can actually communicate with other microbes um, fungi can actually strangle these microscopic worms these nematodes you know sort of put out uh, you know little loops in their in their structure and and strangle nematodes and suck the nitrogen out of them and feed it to the plant well, why would the fungi do that for the plant? Well, they, they do that because at least 20% of the sugar that a plant creates, they, they feed to the underground ecosystem. They essentially dribble out sugars and amino acids, the building blocks of protein and lots and lots of other things into the soil to feed the underground ecosystem. And in return, the underground ecosystem finds what the plant wants. And it's this this beautiful um, symbiosis and, and uh, that, that happens uh, you know, wherever you have living plants um, and living soil, there's this amazing exchange of, uh, of nutrients, of biochemicals. And there's also this uh, ability to communicate, which we're sort of on the cusp of understanding that how plants communicate, uh, not only with other plants, but can communicate with the microbes uh, in the soil to get what they need. Tell us a bit more about that, about how plants communicate with one another via the soil. Yeah, so most of that we think is driven by um, fungi, and I'm not a great expert in this, um, but Suzanne Simma from the US sorry, um, was studying trees and trying to work out why uh, she was working as a forester and why certain trees would, if you planted a single species rather than, a, than two species together, the single species didn't, didn't do as well. Did a whole bunch of research, discovered that fungi, so 
you know, fungi, the things that we think of as, um, you know, fungi can be yeast, it can be mushrooms, but the vast majority of fungi are soil-borne. Um, they've put out these fine threads uh, called hyphae, and they're, they're really tiny, tiny. They can, they're so fine, they can be about 160th the width of a root hair, a, a plant root hair, um, but, but they can be, they're so fine, they can be 10 kilometres of them in a teaspoon of soil. You know, this stuff mm. is, is, is sort of mind-blowing. But those fine threads are able to carry messages. So... So a plant can communicate with another plant. So say a passing giraffe eats a plant, um, they can communicate through the air, through putting out pheromones, but they can also communicate through the fungi at their roots to other plants further away to say, watch out, I'm getting eaten. Change the structure of your leaves to put out a, a, you know, a tannic chemical or a different chemical to make yourself less attractive to the passing giraffe. So it's it's not each tree for themselves, it's trees looking after each other. Older trees and sick trees can actually take the energy out of their structure and feed it to to younger trees using using fungi generally as the as the mechanism and it's this beautiful thing you know that idea of survival of the fittest that everything's trying to kill each other um well a lot of the time things are trying to help each other because there's this mutual it's mutually mutually beneficial and we're certainly finding that they call it the wood wide web but mm. now we know it's actually happening in grasslands it's happening in you know under shrubs it's happening everywhere it's just easier to research in trees Incredible. Also incredible is the fact that almost all of the calories that we consume come as a result of topsoil. How is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that, that energy that the plants create, um, I mean, that's that's essentially the genesis of all um, energy that's available to us as humans. Now, a little bit comes from the oceans. The oceans, they, they, oh, man, you know, the poets write so much about the oceans. They're, the oceans are big in our cultural imaginations, but really in terms of how much energy they provide to us, uh, to humans, yeah, one to 2% of, of, of the energy that humans need comes from the oceans. Um, the rest comes from, from uh, green living plants, creating sugars out of thin air. Now we can eat those plants or we can get animals to eat those plants um, and, and the, the animals, but that's the genesis of, of, of all, you know, pretty much mm. all the food that we eat. Chef, farmer and author Matthew Evans talking to me at the Byron Writers' Festival about his new book, Soil. You can hear the full program by clicking the link on the Big Ideas homepage. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for your company. Bye for now. Hello, I'm Meredith Lake. If you love the breadth of ideas that you hear on Big Ideas, how about another curious, eclectic podcast where you can wonder at the world and what it means to be human? Soul Search goes looking for the soul of a place, a person, maybe even a whole community, asking the big question of how we make meaning. It's a journey, but kind of grounding. So join me by following Soul Search now.